I'm glad you're here if you're visiting with us for the first time today. Uh, We are in a series together called The Core. We're spending four weeks talking about what the core of our church family is about. And uh, we're really setting a target on what is the foundation of the church and the purpose for which we exist. We don't have service on Sunday just to have service on Sunday because that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday. We have an intentional purpose for which we created our church family. And if it ever comes about just opening the doors because you're supposed to open the doors, uh, I don't want to part with it. Um, God created his church for a purpose to live on mission in that purpose. And so together we've been describing what it means to, to have a win, to celebrate that win together as God's community. We've been putting a target on a map. And the reason that we're doing that is because uh, when we unify our purpose and intentions as a community, it, it creates momentum. It creates unity. We all see a common goal in which we're driving to. And, and, and it's a beautiful way to function as God's people. And we see that clearly outlined. To do that, We kind of put it on a baseball diamond. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, I apologize. If you think of a better illustration, let me know, and I'll draw that out for us. But uh, this is baseball season, and you think about what it takes to win in a baseball game. If you start at home plate and you're able to come back to home plate, your team scores. And if you do that enough times, you win, right? And so for us as a church family, there are four elements that we have discussed on how we achieve that win together. And we are to second base today, worship, discipleship, and now we're going to talk about relationship. We want to circle all those bases on the mission and back to worship. And that's what it means for us as a church family to win. As a church, we have described that uh, together in in, uh, various aspects as we talked about worship and discipleship. When we we get to today and talking about relationship, I want you to know I could have used the word fellowship because we're going to emphasize church community. But I feel like the church community is bigger. It leads us to something bigger than, than just fellowship. Fellowship is an important part, but I think it expands into all relationships. And I want to show us how that works. But some of the things that we have talked together about, we started in Matthew cha- or excuse me, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31. Jesus is asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he, he brings it down into two statements, loving God or two commandments, loving God and loving others. That ties in beautifully with the way God has designed this world and the way that God has created you. God has created you for relationship. When God made us in the beginning, he made you different than anything else he made in this world. He formed you intimately, the Bible tells us. Everything else God created, he spoke, it existed. When he created you, he formed you. It shows the intimacy of his creation. He breathes into you the breath of life and he makes you in his image. And that says you being different than anything God created, you can relate to God. You can have a relationship with God. A part of being a a being that relates to God is that you're designed for worship. A worship is what attributes worth back to God. You will find your identity in what you worship. It is impossible for you not to worship something. When you worship something, you, you attribute worth, value, and meaning to it. You devote your time, resources, and talents to magnify the beauty of what it is, whatever it is that you worship. And in so doing, when you do that, you look through for your worth, value, and, and your significance as a being from the thing you attribute your worth to. Now, if what you worship isn't worth worshiping, you'll end up bankrupt. And I think ultimately in life, the only thing you're designed to truly worship and to find, uh, to glorify in is God. And God created you for relationships. So we talked about the significance of worship and how that transforming relationship with God will ultimately transform your relationship with others. And, and we started to talk about how God created his church to express that relationship with God that transforms our relationship with others. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said when he creates his church that the gates of hell will not prevail, that you will literally storm down the gates of hell. <laughs> Even if you have to charge it with a squirt gun, we're after the sucker, right? You storm down the gates of hell and they will not prevail. We talked about something significant when, when it relates to you, worship, and these gates. Anytime a city was built in ancient times, if you went to visit that city, people appreciated the value of a city because it left them uh, protected from bandits and robbers. If you lived outside of the gates of a wall, you were exposed to the elements, exposed to people. If you were inside of the gates, you were protected. If you journeyed to a city and you wanted to visit people of influence, You would go to the gates. The gates determined what went into the city, came out of the city, what influenced the city, the place they ruled and reigned and made wise decisions for the city or attempted to were at the gates. The gates were influential. When it comes to God's kingdom, he helps us to recognize there's really only two kingdoms at war. 
It's God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. That's why Satan's called the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. When Satan is in control of our lives, we don't walk around and say, I worship Satan. No one does that. Well, like four people, but no one else. So when it comes, when it comes to our lives, when Satan's in control, it's not about us making much of Satan. What Satan has done since the beginning of Eden, uh, beginning of the garden of Eden, when you see God uh, creating Adam and Eve, Satan comes to the garden and he challenges what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, surely God didn't say that. Because you should eat the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil. And the moment you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and fruit of fruit of good and evil, then you'll be able to tell God what's right and what's wrong. That's what's at stake there. God has declared what's right and wrong. Adam and Eve usurp the position of God and insert themselves in that position to declare to God what is right and wrong, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They become God of their lives. When we align ourselves not with God's kingdom, but what's contrary to God's kingdom, we make ourselves God of this world. And everything that exists within this world becomes an end to our glory. We use everything God created as a tool for our benefit. We become the end in itself. And we've gone through what that means for us in in several different aspects. But it, it sort of drives to that philosophy with whatever makes you happy. You use everything in this world as a tool for you as you are king, ruling and reigning, and everything is designed for your glory. All the way down to we even described um, when we uh, take advantage of people, like the idea of pornography. Uh, pornography exists at, use it for the re- purpose of someone using someone else as a tool for their pleasure. It's all about you. Yet we know being created by God, God has created everyone intentionally, purposely, uniquely, and for his glory. And we aren't to devalue people in that way. God didn't create creation for our glory to make ourselves king, but for his glory and our benefit. And so when we worship him, what it means in our lives is we submit the gates of who we are. We lay down ourselves, and rather than controlling everything for our glory, we allow the Lord to have control for his glory. Matthew 16, 18 talks about that in the idea of worship and and his church overpowering the gates. And not only do we allow God to have control of our gates, but when the church lives on mission to conquer these gates, the things that we are after in this world isn't to accomplish tasks, but rather to reach hearts. Storming down the gates is about reaching hearts. When you think about what Jesus has done in, in our lives, he came to earth in pursuit of your heart. Ministry does not exist to accomplish tasks. Ministry exists to reach hearts. Sometimes we get that backwards legalistically as people. We see it as a checklist in order to prove to God how wonderful we are so that God has to accept us. There's no more love that God could ever express to you than what he's already done by dying for you on the cross. So God loves you where you are, and he loves you too much to leave you that way. But ministry isn't about accomplishing tasks. Ministry is about reaching hearts. And so we storm down the gates of hell. The purpose of the church in storming down the gates is to reach the hearts of people. They can see the significance of who God is as it transpires throughout our lives, as God uses us, as we surrender our gates for his glory. And in Matthew 28, Jesus said this. He said, make disciples of all nations. He says this to his church. And I gave us this picture last, last week. Uh, I, I talked about how God created his, his creation as ruler, king of authority. We saw it in the seven days of creation. I don't have time to go back to it. But when you get to the end of Revelation 21 and verses 1 to 5, you see God dwelling with his people. And he says, there's no more pain, no more suffering. The first has gone away. So you see this, this kingdom at the beginning of Genesis God's established. This kingdom at the end and its perfection that God has reestablished. And we're in that middle where sin has its destruction. Now, what do we do with that? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that what you long for in your heart is peace. In Isaiah 9, 6, that Prince of Peace is coming to, to bring his peace as the ruler, as the prince, as the one who rules and reigns. Jesus desires to establish that peace in your relationship with him so you can enjoy him for all of eternity. And ultimately, he will establish that that relationship again of ultimate peace when he restores all things in him in Revelation 21. But as God lays that out for us, he's always called a people to declare his glory to all nations. In Genesis, beginning in chapter 12, he calls Abraham. He tells Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. And, and we see as, as the story starts to unfold, as Jesus comes, that in the Gospels, the Jewish nation, by and large, reject the Messiah. And so Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he tells that church in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. God continuing to call his people to reach all nations. In fact, in Acts 1.8, 
He says to us how that church is capable of doing it. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. God's called us to impact the world. And you see how it expands here. Notice it starts locally as a local community in Jerusalem where Jesus was, was crucified and resurrected and it spreads to Judea and then it spreads even further to Samaria all the way to the remotest part of the earth. And one of the things that we recognize when we read a passage like this, when God calls his people to this, is that we cannot accomplish this alone. God's community becomes important. You need a place to belong. God's church is God's tool to make an impact in this world. That fellowship as his community will begin to affect all relationships in this world. And I kind of want to lay down why that's so today. But when you consider the significance of this body, God creates a universal body that also becomes a local body that Jesus died for his church. Jesus refers to the church as his bride. You think about in marital relationships, how important that is, right? Someone comes along and insults your bride, you sock them, right? You protect that. That's special to me. And Jesus uses that language for the church. It's his bride. I love her. So much so that I've given my life for her to the ultimate expression of laying down everything for her benefit and to his glory. You consider what you represent to the church, how you're a part of that community. You know, we think about the universal church versus the local church. As a human being, when you were born into this world, you became a part of the human race, so welcome, right? <laughs> but the minute someone took you home from the hospital, you became a part of a family. You were adopted or included in that local context. The same is true with God's people. When you are reborn, you are a part of the universal church. When you become a part of a local community, you're adopted into that. You have this context of a, of a local family. A Christian without a local home is an orphan. It's not God's intentions for us to live our lives that way. But in understanding what God has called us to in the world, it becomes important to see the value of each one of us in the context of God's community. In Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So he's saying, well, here we are as one body, Jesus' bride, but individually we belong to each other and God has gifted us in particular ways in order to, uh, to be a blessing to one another's lives. Acts chapter two, which is where we concluded last week. I'm gonna pick up there this morning. Acts chapter 2 describes for us what it looks like to be a, a part of God's family and, and, and how God uses this family to accomplish his purpose for the target that he has put on the map. Acts chapter 2, it's important to recognize, is descriptive and not prescriptive. And what I mean is when you turn to the New Testament and you start looking at how, how is a church supposed to function? You know, there's not really a whole lot of specifics on the order of a gathering time. How many minutes you're supposed to spend singing a few songs and praying a few prayers and reading God's word. I mean, that, that structure of a, of a worship gathering is not outlined in scripture. You have some elements described to us like in Acts chapter 2. But there's not a prescription outline for us for ex- exactly how a service is to take place. And I, I appreciate that about the Bible. Because what it says to us is there are some elements that are significant. We'll talk about those in a minute. But by and large, the worship service has flexibility. And that flexibility is important to the context of any community you gather in. Because I think what the Bible is is saying to us is that what inspires the heart to worship in West Africa may not be what inspires the heart to worship in West Alaska. And people are different. Cultures are different. And so God gives us the freedom and and flexibility uh, to worship him in a way that best encourages the context in which you're in. Now, yes, there are some elements to that, but God gives freedom and flexibility. And and, and 
that gives an important identity to what exactly the church is. The church is not an organization, it's not an institution. But the church, when it was created, was a movement. And with movement means there is flexibility. Oftentimes, people refer to the church as organic. Organic is an important expression to just think about for a minute. Organic gives the idea that something is alive. Now, this is true about every organism in this world. Every organism in this world has structure. If it didn't, it couldn't survive. It would be chaos. But the organism within, the organization within an organism gives it the opportunity to thrive. So I would say in the context of a local church, there are certain things that church does that helps it function within its culture to make much of God and to encourage his people to glorify the Lord. Every organism has to have organization. But too much organization and you become a statue. And so when it comes to the the purpose of of God creating his church and what God desires for us, there, there are certain elements God wants us to include within the church. But as far as the structure of how that organization happens... Um, there's freedom and flexibility. And I think one of the reasons Paul outlines for us in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he starts in verse 19, he says this, I have become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And he goes on, he starts to list different people groups, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, slave, free, rich, poor. There are different ways in which you can leverage your place in Christ before an individual that speaks to them in a way that helps them honor Jesus in their lives. And so culture always provides a platform for us to better communicate the gospel. Any church that marries a method will run the risk of becoming irrelevant to the next generation. You've got to always be asking yourself this question. How can God use me to best speak into the cultural context in which I live? I mean, it's important to recognize just our area. We live in a fast-growing location, one of the youngest, actually the youngest state in America. Knowing details about the area in which you live, prescription drug abuse, suicide rate, those, that knowledge about your environment helps you understand how to best engage the culture. You want to do it in a way that's relevant. I don't mean trendy. I don't think a church is called to be trendy because trends always go and they're exhausting, but relevant. You know, one of the beautiful things about God's word is God's word is, is timeless. Truth is timeless and therefore it's always timely. But there's a way that you can communicate to best speak to the culture in which you are engaged in. For example, I'm not going to go to a senior living facility and talk about how to raise kids. That would be ridiculous. I'll talk about godly children. What does that look like? No. It's beyond the audience. So there's a way to relate to the culture. And I think when God describes his church in the New Testament, he doesn't give a prescription of exactly how a gathering should go because he wants us to have flexibility to best penetrate into the culture and encourage one another's lives. Get to know one another. (laughs) Share how the truth of God's word impacts your life and can impact my life and where uh, we are. And when you recognize the flexibility of the church, I think one of the things that starts to highlight for us is that... um, and everybody's important. Like, there are certain things that are pronounced but not necessarily prominent when it comes to the church. Like, here I am today, standing up like this. This is kind of pronounced. Like, when I was a little kid, one of the things that used to concern me was that my head was always bigger than everybody else's. And my ears stuck out. Like, the older I get, the fatter my head gets. So my ears not quite as big. But it's like, it's there, right? It's not necessarily that it's prominent to me. But it's definitely, you can see it's pronounced, right? <laughs> pronounced. What's more prominent to me is probably, I would say, rather than my ears, my internal organs. Right? Not always things that you see, but very significant to the health of my body. And what, I'm, what I mean is, you know, on Sunday, someone may stand up on stage and deliver a sermon, but that doesn't make him any more important than the rest of the body. In fact, according to that, I'm, I'm an ear, and that's really not as big of a deal. Um, and when it comes to being God's community and seeing how God wants you to be relevant, speak into your culture, just 
keep your eyes open to the way God's moving and allow himself to be used. One of the things we like to say to our church is, guys, we can't do that in, in rows. If God's given you a talent and we're all facing this direction today, you can't really use that talent in the seat. And so when God calls us to do things for him, it requires us to get in circles, to think beyond the walls. We're kidding ourselves if we think what it means to live a Christian life is show up on Sunday for an hour. And especially when you start to read Acts chapter 2, because when you look at the context of this verse, look, it says they were continually devoting themselves. So don't, don't overlook this word, devoting themselves, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Like these guys are dedicated to one another and what God desires to accomplish. And, and when you don't know each other, it's hard to share that devotion together. And so one hour on Sunday doesn't get what God is calling his community into. But nonetheless, when you look at Acts chapter 2, we're going to see this description of what they did. But I want us to just realize that there's flexibility in this stuff. That, yeah, there's some things in here that are important. But the the church should always seek how it can leverage its platform to speak into the context in which it exists. We're not marrying a method. Like if somebody told me that one Sunday that, that, you know, if you could demonstrate this, don't just tell me this, but if you could demonstrate that painting the walls hot pink and throwing in shag carpet would somehow further the, the gospel and the encouragement of God's people, man, I can tell you next Sunday when you show up, walls are pink, shag carpet on the floor. I mean, I'll probably walk in going, bam, chicken, wow, wow, every time I go somewhere. But, but if, that, if that's what it takes, that's what I'm willing to do. And so what Paul, is, what, what Paul is expressing and saying, I become all things to all people, is that the body of the Christ is not about serving me. Like church is not about my preference. But it's, the success of the church is the way it, it, it's demonstrating God's people laying themselves down for the benefit of all people, even if you've got a bounce chicken, wow, wow, into the service. Whatever it takes, short of sin, and be willing to do to speak to the hearts of people. When the early church did that in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God, which was promised to the people of God in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, 31, that God would take their heart of stone, make it, uh, make it a new heart, uh, a heart of a spirit and a heart of flesh. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, then shares what the church did. Peter preaches a sermon, and the church, poof, is off and running. And it says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we have written down as God's word, and to fellowship, so this communion together, and the breaking of bread, so breaking of bread is that communion, and they were having a meal together, and to prayer. So they were seeking God's face, prayer, and teaching God's word. And they were doing this in community with one another, encouraging one another as God had called the church collectively to storm down the gates of hell with squirt guns if they have to, and to make disciples of all nations. They needed one another in order to accomplish this purpose, to celebrate that win. And and from this verse, I want you to think about this verse, verse 42, hold it in our brains here. Apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, okay? Verse 43 to 46, then it's kind of the result of all of that. Everyone kept feeling the sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So you see this beautiful unity, and they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So you see this idea of generosity. In verse 47 then, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So this community looks so attractive in its grace and love and giving to one another and the encouragement that it brought to each other, that people were just attracted to the life that existed there. And I think by and large, people want to be a part of something that's life giving. And in this community, they see this life-giving element. So you see verse 42, what they did, verse 43 to 46, sort of the results of that. And verse 47, how the church continued to grow. And when you just break down the, the two elements in verse 42, what you see is they're pursuing the truth of who God is and encouraging one another in fellowship. And so some of the elements that I say are just significant to the church though I just argue that, that there's no definite way a, a service has to play out. But two of the significant elements are seeking God in truth and the fellowship with one another. What does this look like? And I can't undermine the significance of God's truth. What you communicate as God's community is important. And the foundation of understanding of what we should communicate in order to encourage one another is found in God's word. 
the obstacle for living for the Lord in this world is not knowing God's word. You can't make up for not knowing God's word. When God's community is gathering, the thing that they're encouraging one another in is the identity they have that's been shaped in the Lord. And so this, this the idea of God's words where you find wisdom, identity, purpose, truth, and they were, verse 42 tells us, devoted to this. And so we acknowledge that truth for us is the catalyst for life change. That truth is timeless and therefore timely. So not only is truth foundational to God's community, the way you communicate truth is also important. So hold on to these, this verse, verse 42 in your mind for a second, because I'm going to jump off of this, but I want to keep referring back to the idea of what's communicated here. So it's important that you establish yourself in truth because that's the foundational identity of who we are, what God has called us to in this world, wisdom, value, purpose, meaning, all of that found there. But Paul says it's not only that you know the truth, but it becomes important the way you share the truth. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul said, speak the truth in love. And we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says it like this, share truth with gentleness and reverence. And so what Paul and Peter are both getting at in the declaration of truth is the motivation behind it. The purpose of sharing truth isn't to prove you're right and someone else is wrong. It's not to bash people or beat up people. The truth by very nature will expose the lie. Oftentimes in, in church, um, there, are, there are thousands of lies that are taught throughout the world, maybe millions, okay? And it's funny, when I think about a, a truth that I'll share on Sunday morning, I'm like, yeah, that, that denies this lie. But it also denies this lie and this lie and this lie and this lie and this lie. Well, I could share all those lies, but nah, I'll just share the truth. <laughs> and the truth just naturally will just alienate from what isn't true. And so sharing the truth is important, but the way you share the truth is important because the intentions in sharing the truth is to serve. It's not to beat people up. It's not to show you're better than somebody else. It's not to dominate. I I realize when you watch the news or anything where anyone's allowed to have any sort of opinion, that seems to be what it's about when we have these rebuttals take place. I'm smarter than you and you're an idiot. Let me tell you six reasons why. And it's all about not only just trying to propagate what they believe, but diminishing the value of the person that they're talking with. As if to discredit them. Truth will naturally do that. You don't have to devalue people, and you shouldn't devalue people. We're all created in the image of God. And so truth is about serving. And so when we communicate here as a church family, we gather in community. It's not about just weighing people down and, and making them feel beneath you because you're better than them. That's, that's not the purpose of truth at all. In fact, when First Peter tells us to do it gentleness and reverence, the reason he tells us to do it is because we're apt to fall into the same error. We wrestle with sin too. And when that happens in my life, I need someone to come beside me and encourage me. They all don't put shag carpet in the church. That's not going to help us, Right? I need to encourage you. Not, hey, that's an idiot decision. Don't do that. You know, that doesn't go over as well. And so the, the point of God's truth is to serve. And so it's not just knowing the truth, but the way that you communicate the truth that becomes important. And in addition to that, it's also how it applies. Because the reality is that truth should lead you to deeper fellowship. Because when you look at the way that the church interacted in the, in the first century... When the Spirit of God came into their lives, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and look into fellowship. God's truth drew them into deeper community. The reality is, within our culture, we have been grossly misled in what it means to follow Christ. Because somewhere along the way, I think it's the Roman cultural influence upon our society today, but we've equated information with spirituality. Just because you know something about the Bible doesn't make you wise, nor does it make you spiritual. And so information uh, doesn't mean spirituality. And the reality is, uh, we as people are educated beyond our obedience, but what it's saying in this text, if truth doesn't lead you to love and serve others, you need to check what you're calling truth. Because the purpose for truth, which God has revealed himself, is to serve us so that we can identify who he is and walk in that truth in this world. 
And so truth leads to fellowship. And deeper fellowship as we grow closer to the Lord. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandments are to love God and love others. Because if you love God, you're going to love the things that God loves. And the things that God loves is people because God created people in his image. And to say that you love God but you treat other people like dirt is to deny the very one that you claim to follow. And so truth in God is it saturates our hearts to transform our lives and the way that we impact this world. In fact, one of the things that I told you is that the promise in the New Testament is the Spirit of God will take a heart of stone and it will turn it into a heart of flesh. And when you look in Galatians chapter 5, as Paul talks about the Spirit for us, it says this, but I say walk in the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. That means literally surrendered to Spirit. The, the gates of life you're not in control of, but you've allowed God to be in control of. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And look at this, but the fruit of the spirit, this is what it looks like. He's saying for the spirit to work in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. So it's saying, if you belong to Jesus, you've laid yourself down. So walk in that spirit. Now, if we said the question, what does it look like to live like as God's community? religiously, legalistically thinking, oftentimes we'd want a checklist, a ministry task to accomplish, as if to say to God, God, I've performed this, now you owe me some greater standing in eternity one day. But God doesn't need you to do anything. There's nothing that you can ever do in this world that's going to impress God. God's the one that created you. He could just do it himself. God created you for relationship. And when you look in the context of what it means for the spirit of God to work in our lives, it's not tasks being accomplished. Everything that it says the spirit of God does in our lives as we come to know God and enjoy him, they're all relational words. All of them. Look at it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's not this legalistic rule or law. When God transforms our heart, he transforms our lives to impact the relationships of those around us. So when God is on the move, spiritually speaking, not only do we saturate ourselves in the truth of who God is, but he deepens our fellowship and relationship. Now, this is why I said when we looked at the baseball diamond just a minute ago, I could have used the word fellowship in reference to the church because we're going to talk about the church. But I didn't want to just talk about the church. I wanted to talk about relationships holistically because the church becomes the foundation for God's, as God's instrument to encourage all of us in the relationships throughout this world. And when the spirit of God is moving in our lives, it doesn't just impact the fellowship within God's community. It impacts the relationships we have abroad. And so when the spirit is working, the spirit encourages me in the way I interact in this world. It's not just about information and knowledge. It's about God changing my heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now notice in this verse... It says fruit, singular. When it talks about our works, it refers to it as plural. But when it talks about the spirit moving, it's talking about fruit, singular. And so what it's saying in the spirit is that the spirit doesn't just do one of these things. When we're surrendered to God in our lives, the spirit will do all of these things collectively. And so legalistically, here's what we tend to do with this list. We'll go through this list and we'll think, you know, I've, been, I've got some love and some whatever joy and some peace, but I really blew it on patience. I'm going to try harder with patience. And then the rest I'll take care of later, you know? And so you look at this list legalistic and you think, uh, I'm going to try harder at this. But can I tell you, the very reason you fail at living out the fruit of the spirit is not, um, is, it's because of you. And so the solution is not try harder in one of the areas you're failing in. The solution he gives us in Galatians 5, it's surrendering yourself to the spirit of God. And the reason is this. When I'm not loving, it's because I feel like someone has come against me who is king of my universe. Therefore, I react to their response. And when I'm not patient, it's because someone has come against me who is king of the universe. Therefore, as Lord of my life, I respond in the flesh. And it goes on and on from there. And so the solution isn't try harder. The solution is surrender myself to what God has called me to. Now, Christians, I want you to know that doesn't equate passivity. That doesn't mean you become a coward and you tuck tail when life gets hard. In fact, I think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the place the spirit really makes itself known is when it's difficult. Because anyone can love when it's easy to love. And anyone can be patient when it's easy to be patient. 
It's when those things are tested that you truly see what's driving your life. Is it your flesh just responding because it's convenient? Or is it the spirit of God rising above the circumstances, vowing another person, even though they may be maligning against you? What controls your life? And in that, you get to fearlessly move forward, storming down the gates, because you understand the very reason God, God has come for you. And what, let me just say it like this. Um, sometimes in life, we meet challenging people. We just think to ourselves, we justify it. You know, if they were more like me, they'd be easy to love, right? Yeah, okay. But the truth is, just consider what it took for Jesus to love you. He gave his life. You weren't easy to love. He had to give his life. When Jesus calls you to love other people, he's not calling you to love other people as they would act more like you. He's calling you to love other people the way he's demonstrated his love towards you. Now you've got purpose and meaning behind all that that drives you as Lord that's not been loved and been able have to be patient all the time, you know? You get to overcome you as Lord of your life and let Jesus rule and reign in that circumstance. God calls us to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers just slide things under the rug. Peacemakers pursue the challenge. They care and love enough about the relationships around them, which is what the Spirit of God wants to work in to do something about it. That's what the church needs. And so he calls us into this in, in Galatians to storm down these gates of hell. And what we're pursuing after when the Spirit of God is at work is, is relationships, to impact through his relationships as God impacts our lives with our relationship with him. It's not about my strength, but about his working through me. One of the, one of the stories I love, 1990, Stacy King was a rookie for the Chicago Bulls. And you know who played for the Chicago Bulls in 1990? It was God of the basketball court, Michael Jordan, right? And Michael Jordan in 1990, he played, he played a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers and he scored 69 points, one of his greatest games of all time. And afterwards, reporters were in the locker room talking to Stacey King and they were talking about Michael Jordan, of course, not about Stacey King, but they go to, they go to Stacey King and they said, what was it like to play with Michael Jordan on such a historical night, scoring 69 points? And, and, and what was it like to be there, be present, be a part of that? And Stacey King was like, I'll never forget about the time Michael Jordan and I worked together to score 70 points against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the point was, Stacey King was trying to make so much about the one little measly point he had to offer next to Michael Jordan. Let me just, let me just give you some encouragement. If you're ever on a basketball court with Michael Jordan, don't talk about how great you are at basketball. <laughs> when you're living your life for the Lord, it's not about your glory. It's about his glory working through you. God has called you into something significant in this world. Storming down the gates of hell. In a community that understands what it means to live for Christ. And enjoy his, his presence. And to make an impact of all nations. If I were to show in the context of how that community should operate. Talking about the church family. And living this out. Knowing that this isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to be loving when people aren't loving. It's not going to be easy uh, to, to experience joy when other people are just complaining all the time on the news. It's not going to be easy to have peace when people just are not nice to deal with or patience or kindness. It's not going to be easy. And so God's community becomes important because they understand the mission for which we're created. And so in Hebrews, they tell us how that should look as a church. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good, de good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he gives us this imperative statement and it's in the negative form. Don't forsake attending together and gathering together. Don't, don't do that. Because in doing that, you're, you're recognizing that you don't see the value of who you are in God's community and the value of other people in God's community. Don't do that. So that's a negative. But he's given us now the positive as to why it's surrounded in these positive statements. Because we're called to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. This idea of stimulating means to provoke or contend. There's only one other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It happens in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have an argument. And it's not a pretty argument. And it is heated. But God, in the passage in Hebrews, uses the same word to describe not a negative argument, but the heat of, of which we are to bring to one another with a passion to encourage each other to keep storming down the gates of hell. 
stimulate, to contend, to provoke. And then he says this, to encourage one another. And what he means by encouragement is this. People need encouraged. If the person next to you is breathing this morning, they need encouraged. And we need encouraged, especially in the idea of relationship, because that's where the Spirit of God wants to work in our lives. To help one another. This idea of, of encouragement comes from the, the Greek word uh, parakleto or parakletes. It's where we get the, the New Testament word for Holy Spirit. And so it's literally saying you mimic the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense because the person that wants to work through you is the Spirit of God. And so your actions mimic the way the Spirit of God wants to move in the life of, of those around you to comfort, encourage, console, connect, change, transform. Because the day's approaching. The result of all this, it's an attractive community. Acts 2 verse 47 said, right? The Lord was adding to them day by day those who were coming to know him. How do we live out Acts 2? How do we live like a church community? I think it told us in verse 42. They were committed. They were committed to getting to God's word. They were committed to fellowship. When you see verse 43 on in that section that we read together, it's beautiful. In verse 47, the power of that community, man, I look at that and I'm like, I want that. I want to experience what God's community is doing. And I'm not saying I haven't experienced that in some degrees at different times in walking with Christ, but man, I want to live it every day. How? They're committed to know God more and allow that to impact their relationship with others, which in turn becomes the place in which God encourages them to impact all of their relationships in this world. I want that. God's community provides the basis to encourage all other, all other communities and relationships we experience. Why? Because they're committed to it. It doesn't happen one hour on Sunday. That intimate care is something that we develop throughout the duration of our relationships together. It happens when we go beyond these walls. Like I know as a church family, we keep growing, and, and I, I know that we can't know everybody. But listen, guys, everyone deserves to be known. So I encourage you in the context of our community to find a tribe, to find a group that becomes your people to encourage you on this path together and allow God to use that on Sunday to keep encouraging people. That's why as a church family, one of the foundational things that we have are community groups. We call them connection groups, a place for you to connect. I'm going to tell you why it's more important here in a minute, but a place for you to connect and, and encourage one another to not just sit in, in, in rows, but to get in circles and to use your gifts to invest in one another's lives, to inspire and encourage us to what God's called us to in this world. Because I think in the context in which we live, there are obstacles to the fellowship that God calls us to as, as his people. Here's, let me just give you a few of them. One is, is one that we have by default as people. It's religious legalism. And religious legalism puts us in a place where we always feel like we're under the, under the gun to perform. In fact, I'd tell you, um, if you want to read the effects of that, look at Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus finally just preaches the woes against the Pharisees. How their religious legalism oppresses people and it puts people in a position where they just feel weighed down. And when you feel like you're living your life like that, like you have to perform and people are examining you, you've got to look a certain way. It is difficult to just enjoy life. Let me tell you, one of the beautiful things about God's community is what the gospel truly is. And the gospel for, for us, and biblically speaking, it's a place where we recognize Jesus already knows every sin we've ever done and ever will do, and he died for us anyway. No one is ever going to love you to that degree that Christ loves you. And Jesus loves you where you are, and he loves you too much to leave you that way. God wants to do a transforming work in your life. And here's the beauty, because God loves you like that, that gives you the opportunity just to be open. I don't have to impress anybody anymore. If I'm already accepted in Christ because I've embraced Jesus and what he's done for me, who gives a flip? Jesus loves me, and he wants to transform in me. And part of the healing process in that for God to, to just work on me is, is for me just to be transparent with the struggles I have in my life. Allow God's community to encourage me. I'll put myself under that performance mentality that oppresses me, but to rest in Jesus. That's why Christ said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. 
You know, Jesus is saying that on the backdrop of religion after he just criticized religious leaders for oppressing people? Rest. I already know. I already know your struggles, your weaknesses, your failures. I already know how you get down on yourself because of it. I love you, and I died for you, and I'm here to transform you. God works through his community to do that. Let me give you another one. Uh, Sometimes we're lonely because we have unhealthy views of relationships. We put expectations on relationships that just can't deliver. But sometimes we're lonely because it's completely normal and human to be lonely. I think there's there's a healthy part of loneliness because it recognizes how important relationships really are. Intimate relationships, not just a relationship, but intimate relationships. And so it causes us to want to seek and pursue those things because we're created for them. Love God, love others. You know, one of the things that I didn't, I never anticipated in moving to Utah one of the struggles I think that we have with fellowship, and I'm just going to give you the mess, and you, can, you, you tell me how to deal with it. I don't, I don't have a tie bow to put on this, okay? But one of the things I, I didn't anticipate in moving here is the rate people move away. Um, I, I read a book after I moved here, and I saw how quickly, how transient people are, especially in an area that's exploding like it is. And it said, in a major city, an average church we'll see 20% of the congregation move away in a year. And when I say move, I mean like hundreds of miles, right? They move away, 20%. But for whatever reason here in Utah, I guess because of the exceptional growth that we've had, notice in the last three years, one third of our church moves away in a year. In fact, over the last four months, it's been about 25%. What's crazy is our attendance hasn't dropped. 25% of our church are gone in four months and our attendance has not dropped, it's gone up. That's, that is insane. That is, it's, so... You have one third of your church move away in a year. Now, here's, here's another crazy stat. When I first moved here, I also read an article that talked about the, some of the stressful things people go through in life. It labeled the top five most stressful things you go through in life. In those top five, three of these included death of a close loved one or, or friend, job change, and moving. In fact, when, you read a little, when I read a little further in the, in the, the article, was it related to moving, it said, when anytime anyone moves... It takes you two to three years before you feel like you put your roots down in an area and start to call it home. Now, let me, let me just position these two stats together for you for just a minute so you can think about this with me. This is my challenge. God calls us in the community. God calls us to fellowship, okay? If one-third of your church moves in a year, but it takes three years before you feel like a place is home, we're all homeless. I mean, statistically, when you think about that, no one feels at home. So, so let me just encourage you this way. As a church family, if you're looking around, you're like, man, I don't know anybody. No one does. No one knows anybody. We're all like new to this, man. So, so knowing God calls you to fellowship and encouraging one another, man, everyone around you is new. So that gives you a great slate to just start with each other, right? But this is what I'm saying. I don't think these obstacles can't be overcome. But I think it becomes very important then to recognize the significance of fellowship. Because here's what happens. For people that are transient in our area, you come in, you know you're only going to be here for three years. Wherever you move next, it may take you three more years to put your roots down. That's a long time of unsettling. At the same time, if you know you're here for the duration, it becomes difficult for you to sometimes put relationships out there. Because you're like, man, statistics say in three years you're going to be gone. Are you worth investing in? That's a challenge. I don't like it. I tell people, when you move, I'm going to act like a baby. If you ever tell me you're going to move, I'm going to cry like a three-year-old. It's not because I don't think it's great people have opportunities in this world. I'm glad when people can go other places and expand for the kingdom of God. That's wonderful. But honestly, when people leave, it's kind of like grieving to death. You love people. You want to have a relationship with people. I moved here because I care about people. When that happens, it's like a third of death every, every year. So what does that mean? I think the crux of it all, if we want to be effective, fellowship becomes important. And guys, as a church community, because of the nature of where we are, I I think this is just a season of life in Utah, this rapid growth rate. Because of the nature of where we are, that makes fellowship so much more important. I can tell you last week, I brought up the word loneliness one time. I said the biggest struggle I think we have here in Utah is loneliness. And like from up here, looking at your heads, half of them, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And I can't make people fellowship. I can't. But I can tell you we can create a platform for that to exist. And I, I can't make you 
make that your tribe, but I can tell you how important it is to experience that in transparency, to have a place to let your hair down. Now, I want you to know, in highlighting fellowship today, the one thing I don't want you to do, I don't want you to walk out of here and go buck wild and be like, man, that's it, you're right, relationships. I'm making myself friends with 50,000 people. Because you know, just like your Facebook status, you might have 1,500 friends, but you're not friends with all of those people. No one can have 1,500 friends. So I'm not telling you to go out and make 1,500 friends. I'm, going out, I'm saying just go out and make some friends, right? Have a tribe within your community to encourage you in what God has called us to because when that's expressed and lived out in this world, it becomes attractive to the rest of the world. I had some other verses I'm going to share, but I'm out of time, so I'm not going to. So let me just say this. Number one, recognize the importance of community. Um, I've heard people use community groups in describing uh, it as preventative counseling. And what I mean is, if you own a car, you drive that car, you know how important it is to do some regular maintenance. If you decide you're going to drive that car and you just, your car's special and it doesn't need an oil change, in about 10,000 miles, you're going to be reminded of how important that oil change is. And in fact, rather than paying 30 or 40 bucks for your oil change, you're now paying thousands of dollars to replace your engine. Some regular maintenance becomes important for you to live healthy or for you to drive healthy. I think community groups work the same way. When your group's about fellowship and diving into God's word together and encouraging one another in the life, wherever, whatever season you find yourself in, it becomes a way of preventative counseling. It becomes a way to encourage your family where they are to inspire them to be all that God has called them to be. Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't invest in God's community, at some point in your life, you're going to find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place. And at that point, it might be too late to have those people around you to encourage you in your life where you are. It's far better to invest now because one day you're going to need it. And if you don't, someone else does. And God's called you to be a part of the encouragement within that community. Number two, be transparent. I've said this already, be transparent. The depth of our fellowship is only as good as the transparency that we carry for one another and the concern that we have. Don't, uh, don't overcommit, but commit. Don't spread yourself too thin, but develop some relationships the Lord can use to encourage your life. And number four, we, we're all a part of God's plan together. No one's more important than anyone else, but God has gifted us all uniquely as a part of his body. You know, and noting we all struggle with loneliness sometimes. Um, one of the people I love is Charles Spurgeon. And one of the reasons I love Charles Spurgeon is because um, he, ha- he had, I don't, I don't care about the size of his church, but he did have one of the largest churches to ever exist at that time. He, before there was audio ability to orate, his church was in the thousands and he would speak multiple times publicly and people could hear him. The man was loud, right? But, but one of the crazy things about Charles Spurgeon is that he struggled deeply with depression. And you read about the, the, the things that he faced in his life and the comments that his wife made. I mean, the man, uh, he spent his life in the pits. But you know, one of the cool things about the struggles that he faced is that he was very candid. And I think that's why people came to the church. They saw a guy that was just transparent. And they saw how he walked with Jesus. And in their struggles, they wanted to walk with Jesus too. And... Um, in his struggle, Charles Spurgeon used to defy his depression. And then he started to talk about how he embraced it. Because he recognized that it was also the tool that God used to draw him closer to him. Now, I'm not saying, you know, enjoy your loneliness, see you later. <laughs> what I'm saying is sometimes in the, in the depth of our struggles, there's a place where God calls us to him. And I think those are important times to meet the Lord to walk with him and let him strengthen us. But in all of this, guys, when we consider what it means to live victorious in Christ, I want us to not walk out realizing that we do it alone and that we should do it alone. Worship and your growth as a disciple is important, but it happens in the context of community. And that community, as it lives itself out, reaches the world. We're going to talk about missions next week. But the value of the church, this is Jesus' bride, and you're a part of it. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.